Section 5 of The Life of Abraham Lincoln. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Maria Casper. The Life of Abraham Lincoln by Ward Hill Lemon. Chapter 3. Abe and Gentry returned from New Orleans some time in June 1828, having been gone not quite three months. How much longer he remained in the service of Gentry, or whether he remained at all, we are unable to say. But he soon took up his old habits, and began to work around among his neighbors, or for his father, precisely as he had done before he got his partial glimpse of the great world down the river. In the fall of 1829 Mr. Wood saw him cutting down a large tree in the woods, and whip-sawing it into planks. Abe said the lumber was for a new house his father was about to build. But Tom Lincoln changed his mind before the house was half done, and Abe sold his planks to Josiah Crawford, the bookman, who worked them into the southeast room of his house, where relic-seekers have since cut pieces from them to make canes. In truth, the continued prevalence of that dreadful disease, the milk-sickness, with which Nancy Hanks and the Sparrows and the Halls had all died, was more than a sufficient reason for a new removal, now in contemplation by Thomas Lincoln. Every member of his family, from the first settlement in Indiana, except perhaps Abe and himself, had suffered with it. The cattle, which, it is true, were of little pecuniary value, and raised with great ease and little cost, were swept away by it in great numbers throughout the whole neighborhood. It was an awful scourge, and common prudence suggested flight. It is wonderful that it took a constitutional mover thirteen years to make up his mind to escape from it. Note. What made Thomas Lincoln leave? The reason is this. We were perplexed by a disease called milk-sick. I myself being the oldest, I was determined to leave, and hunt a country where the milk-sick was not. I married his eldest daughter, I sold out, and they concluded to go with me. Billy, I was tolerably popular at that time, for I had some money. My wife's mother could not think of parting with her, and we ripped up stakes and started to Illinois, and landed at Decatur. This is the reason for leaving Indiana. I am to blame for it, if any. As for getting more land, this was not the case, for we could have entered ten thousand acres of the best land. When we left it was on account of the milk. Billy, I had four good milch cows, too, with it, in one week, and eleven young calves. This was enough to ruin me. Besides, liked to have lost my own life with it. This reason was enough, ain't it, for leaving. Dennis Hanks End Note in the spring of 1830, before the winter had fairly broken up, he and Abe and Dennis Hanks and Levi Hall, with their respective families, thirteen in all, took the road for Illinois. Dennis and Levi, as already stated, were married to the daughters of Mrs. Lincoln. Hall had one son, and Dennis a considerable family of sons and daughters. Sarah, or Nancy Lincoln, who had married Aaron Grigsby, was now dead. John Hanks had gone to the new country from Kentucky in the fall of 1828, and settled near Decatur, whence he wrote Thomas Lincoln all about it, and advised him to come there. 
Dennis, whether because of the persuasions of John, or some observations made in a flying trip on his own account, was very full of the move, and would hear to no delay. Lincoln sold his farm to Gentry Sr., if indeed he had not done so before, and his corn and hogs to Dave Turnham. The corn brought only ten cents a bushel, and, according to the price-list furnished by Dennis Hanks, the stock must have gone at figures equally mean. Lincoln took with him to Illinois some stock cattle, one horse, one bureau, one table, one clothes-chest, one set of chairs, cooking utensils, clothing, etc. The goods of the three families, Hanks, Halls, and Lincolns, were loaded on a wagon belonging to Lincoln. This wagon was ironed, a noticeable fact in those primitive days, and was positively the first one that he, Lincoln, ever owned. It was drawn by four yoke of oxen, two of them Lincolns and two of them Hanks's. We have no particulars of the journey, except that Abe held the gad and drove the team, that the mud was very deep, that the spring freshets were abroad, and that in crossing the swollen and tumultuous Kaskaskia the oxen and wagon were nearly swept away. On the first day of March, 1830, after fifteen days' tedious and heavy travel, they arrived at John Hanks's house, four miles northwest of Decatur. Lincoln settled, if anything he did may be called settling, at a point ten miles west of Decatur. Here John Hanks had cut some logs in 1829, which he now gave to Lincoln to build a house with. With the aid of John, Dennis, Abe, and Hall, a house was erected on a small bluff on the north bank of the north fork of the Sangamon. Abe and John took the four yoke of oxen, and broke up fifteen acres of land, and then split rails enough to fence it in. Abe was now over twenty-one. There was no Uncle Wood to tell him that his age was against him. He had done something more than his duty by his father, and as that worthy was now again placed in a situation where he might do well if he chose, Abe came to the conclusion that it was time for him to begin life on his own account. It must have cost him some pain to leave his good stepmother, but beyond that all the old ties were probably broken without a single regret. From the moment he was a free man, footloose, able to go where and do what he pleased, his success in those things which lay nearest his heart, that is, public and social preferment, was astonishing to himself as well as to others. It is with great pleasure that we dismiss Tom Lincoln, with his family and fortunes, from further consideration in these pages. After Abraham left him, he moved at least three times in search of a healthy location, and finally got himself fixed near Goose Nest Prairie in Coles County, where he died of a disease of the kidneys in 1851, at the ripe old age of seventy-three. The little farm, forty acres, upon which his days were ended, he had, with his usual improvidence, mortgaged to the school commissioners for two hundred dollars, its full value. Induced by love for his stepmother, Abraham had paid the debt, and taken a deed for the land, with a reservation of a life estate therein to them or the survivor of them. At the same time, 1841, he gave a helping hand to John Johnston, binding himself to convey the land to him or his heirs after the death of Thomas Lincoln and his wife, upon payment of the two hundred dollars, 
which was really advanced to save John's mother from utter penury. No matter how much the land might appreciate in value, John was to have it upon these terms, and no interest was to be paid by him except after the death of the survivor, as aforesaid. This was, to be sure, a great bargain for John, but he made haste to assign his bond to another person for fifty dollars paid in hand. As soon as Abraham got a little up in the world, he began to send his stepmother money, and continued to do so until his own death. But it is said to have done her no good, for it only served to tempt certain persons about her, with whom she shared it, to continue in a life of idleness. At the close of the Black Hawk War, Mr. Lincoln went to see them for a few days, and afterwards, when a lawyer, making the circuits with the courts, he visited them whenever the necessities of his practice brought him to their neighborhood. He did his best to serve Mrs. Lincoln and her son John, but took little notice of his father, although he wrote him an exhortation to believe in God when he thought he was on his deathbed. But in regard to the relations between the family and Abe, after the latter began to achieve fame and power, nobody can tell the truth more clearly, or tell it in a more interesting and suggestive style, than our friend Dennis, with whom we are now about to part forever. It will be seen that when information reached the Goose Nest Prairie that Abe was actually chosen President of the United States, a general itching for public employment broke out among the Hankses, and that an equally general disappointment was the result. Doubtless all of them had expectations somewhat like Sancho Panza's when he went to take the government of his island, and John Hanks at least would not have been disappointed, but for the little disability which Dennis mentions in the following extract. Did Abraham Lincoln treat John D. Johnston well? I will say this much about it. I think Abe done more for John than he deserved. John thought that Abe did not do enough for the old people. They became enemies a while on this ground. I don't want to tell all the things that I know. It would not look well in history. I say this. Abe treated John well. What kind of a man was Johnston? I say this much. A kinder-hearted man was never in Coles County, Illinois, nor an honester man. I don't say this because he was my brother-in-law. I say it knowing it. John did not love to work any the best. I flogged him for not working. Did Thomas Lincoln treat Abe cruelly? He loved him. I never could tell whether Abe loved his father very well or not. I don't think he did, for Abe was one of those forward boys. I have seen his father knock him down, off the fence, when a stranger would ask the way to a neighbor's house. Abe always would have the first word. The old man loved his children. Did any of the Johnston family ask for office? No. Thomas Johnston went to Abe. He got this permit to take daguerreotypes in the army. This is all, for they are all dead except John's boys. They did not ask for any. Did you or John Hanks ask Lincoln for any office? I say this, that John Hanks of Decatur did solicit him for an Indian agency, and John told me that Abe as good as told him he should have one, but John could not read or write. I think this was the reason that Abe did not give John the place. As for myself, I did not ask Abe right out for an office. Only this, I would like to have the post office in Charleston. This was my wife that asked him. He told her that much was understood, as much as to say that I would get it, 
I did not care much about it. Do you think Lincoln cared much for his relations? I will say this much. When he was with us, he seemed to think a great deal of us. But I thought sometimes it was hypocritical. But I am not sure. Abe left the Lincoln family late in March or early in April. He did not go far away, but took jobs wherever he could get them, showing that he had separated himself from the family, not merely to rove, but to labor and be an independent man. He made no engagement of a permanent character during this summer. His work was all done by the job. If he ever split rails for Kirkpatrick, over whom he was subsequently elected captain of a volunteer company about to enter the Black Hawk War, it must have been at this time. But the story of his work for Kirkpatrick, like that of his making a crap of corn for Mr. Brown, is probably apocryphal. Note, see Holland's Life of Lincoln, page 40, end note. All this while he clung close to John Hanks, and either worked where he did or not far away. In the winter following he was employed by a Major Warwick to make rails, and walked daily three miles to his work and three miles back again. After Abe got to Decatur, says John Hanks, or rather to Macon, my county, a man by the name of Posey came into our neighborhood and made a speech. It was a bad one, and I said Abe could beat it. I turned down a box or keg, and Abe made his speech. The other man was a candidate. Abe wasn't. Abe beat him to death, his subject being the navigation of the Sangamon River. The man, after the speech was through, took Abe aside and asked him where he had learned so much and how he did so well. Abe replied, stating his manner and method of reading and what he had read. This man encouraged Lincoln to persevere. In February 1831, Mr. Denton Offutt wanted to engage John Hanks to take a flatboat to New Orleans. John was not well disposed to the business, but Offutt came to the house and would take no denial, made much of John's fame as a river man, and at length persuaded him to present the matter to Abe and John Johnston. He did so. The three friends discussed the question with great earnestness. It was no slight affair to them, for they were all young and poor. At length they agreed to Offutt's proposition, and that agreement was the turning point in Abe's career. They were each to receive fifty cents a day, and the round sum of sixty dollars divided amongst them for making the trip. These were wages such as Abe had never received before, and might have tempted him to a much more difficult enterprise. When he went with Gentry, the pay was only eight dollars a month, and no such company and assistance as he was to have now. But Offutt was lavish with his money, and generous bargains like this ruined him a little while after. In March, Hanks, Johnston, and Lincoln went down the Sangamon in a canoe to Jamestown, then Judy's Ferry, five miles east of Springfield. Thence they walked to Springfield, and found Mr. Offutt comforting himself at Elliot's Tavern in Old Town. He had contracted to have a boat ready at the mouth of Spring Creek, but not looking after it himself was, of course, disappointed. There was only one way out of the trouble. The three hands must build a boat. They went to the mouth of Spring Creek, five miles north of Springfield, and there consumed two weeks cutting the timber from Congress land. In the meantime, Abe walked back to Judy's Ferry by way of Springfield, 
and brought down the canoe which they had left at the former place. The timber was hewed and scored, and then rafted down to Sogamon Town. At the mouth of Spring Creek they had been compelled to walk a full mile for their meals, but at Sangamon Town they built a shanty and boarded themselves. Abe was elected cook, and performed the duties of the office much to the satisfaction of the party. The lumber was sawed at Kirkpatrick's mill, a mile and a half from the shanty. Laboring under many disadvantages like this, they managed to complete and launch the boat in about four weeks from the time of beginning. Offutt was with the party at this point. He was a Whig, and so was Abe. But he, Abe, could not hear Jackson wrongfully abused, especially where a lie and malice did the abuse. Out of this difference arose some disputes which served to enliven the camp, as well as to arouse Abe's ire and keep him in practice in the way of debate. In those days Abe, as usual, is described as being funny, jokey, full of yarns and stories and rigs, as being long, tall, and green, frequently quoting poetry, and reciting prose-like orations. They had their own amusements. Abe extracted a good deal of fun out of the cooking, took his dram when asked to, and played seven-up at night, at which he made a good game. A juggler gave an exhibition at Sangamon Town, in the upper room of Jacob Carman's house. Abe went to it, dressed in a suit of rough blue jeans. He had on shoes, but the trousers did not reach them by about twelve inches, and the naked shin, which had excited John Romine's laughter years ago in Indiana, was still exposed. Between the roundabout and the waist of the trousers there was another wide space uncovered, and, considering these defects, Mr. Lincoln's attire was thought to be somewhat inelegant even in those times. His hat, however, was a great improvement on coonskins and a possum. It was woolen, broad-brimmed, and low-crowned. In this hat the showman cooked eggs. Whilst Abe was handing it up to him, after the man had long solicited a similar favor from the rest of the audience, he remarked, "'Mister, the reason I didn't give you my hat before was out of respect to your eggs, not care for my hat.'" Loaded with barrel pork, hogs, and corn, the boat set out from Sangamon Town as soon as finished. Mr. Offutt was on board to act as his own merchant intending to pick up additions to his cargo along the banks of the two Illinois rivers down which he was about to pass. On the 19th of April they arrived at New Salem, a little village destined to be the scene of the seven eventful years of Mr. Lincoln's life which immediately followed the conclusion of the present trip. Just below New Salem the boat stuck, for one night and the better part of a day, on Rutledge's mill dam, one end of it hanging over the dam, and the other sunk deep in the water behind. Here was a case for Abe's ingenuity, and he exercised it with effect. Quantities of water were being taken in at the stern, the lading was sliding backwards, and everything indicated that the rude craft was in momentary danger of breaking in two or sinking outright. But Abe suggested some unheard-of expedient for keeping it in place, while the cargo was shifted to a borrowed boat, and then, boring a hole in that part of the bottom extending over the dam, he rigged up an equally strange piece of machinery for tilting and holding it while the water ran out. All New Salem was assembled on shore, watching the progress of this singular experiment, 
and with one voice affirm that Abe saved the boat, although nobody is able to tell us precisely how. Note. Many persons at New Salem describe in full Abe's conduct on this occasion. End note. The adventure turned Abe's thoughts to the class of difficulties, one of which he had just surmounted, and the result of his reflections was an improved method for lifting vessels over shoals. Offutt declared that when he got back from New Orleans he would build a steamboat for the navigation of the Sangamon, and make Abe the captain. He would build it with runners for ice and rollers for shoals and dams, for with Abe in command by thunder she'd have to go. Note. Occupying an ordinary and commonplace position in one of the showcases in the large hall of the patent office is one little model which in ages to come will be prized as at once one of the most curious and one of the most sacred relics in that vast museum of unique and priceless things. This is a plain and simple model of a steamboat, roughly fashioned in wood, by the hand of Abraham Lincoln. It bears date in 1849, when the inventor was known simply as a successful lawyer and rising politician of central Illinois. Neither his practice nor his politics took up so much of his time as to prevent him from giving much attention to contrivances which he hoped might be of benefit to the world and of profit to himself. The design of this invention is suggestive of one phase of Abraham Lincoln's early life, when he went up and down the Mississippi as a flatboat man, and became familiar with some of the dangers and inconveniences attending the navigation of western rivers. It is an attempt to make it an easy matter to transport vessels over shoals and snags and sawyers. The main idea is that of an apparatus resembling a noiseless bellows, placed on each side of the hull of the craft, just below the water-line, and worked by an odd but not complicated system of ropes, valves, and pulleys. When the keel of the vessel grates against the sand or obstruction, these bellows are to be filled with air, and thus buoyed up, the ship is expected to float lightly and gaily over the shoal, which would otherwise have proved a serious interruption to her voyage. The model, which is about eighteen or twenty inches long, and has the air of having been whittled with a knife out of a shingle and a cigar-box, is built without any elaboration or ornament or any extra apparatus, beyond that necessary to show the operation of buoying the steamer over the obstructions. Herein it differs from very many of the models which share with it the shelter of the immense halls of the patent office, and which are fashioned with wonderful nicety and exquisite finish, as if much of the labor and thought and affection of a lifetime had been devoted to their construction. This is a model of a different kind, carved as one might imagine a retired rail-splitter would whittle, strongly but not smoothly, and evidently made with a view solely to convey by the simplest possible means to the minds of the patent authorities, an idea of the purpose and plan of the simple invention. The label on the steamer's deck informs us that the patent was obtained, but we do not learn that the navigation of the western rivers was revolutionized by this quaint conception. The modest little model has reposed here sixteen years, and since it found its resting-place here on the shelf, the shrewd inventor has found it his task to guide the ship of state 
over shoals more perilous and obstructions more obstinate than any prophet dreamed of when abraham lincoln wrote his bold autograph on the prow of this miniature steamer correspondent boston advertiser End note. over the dam and in the deep pool beyond they reloaded and floated down to blue bank a mile above the mouth of salt creek where offutt bought some more hogs but the hogs were wild and refused to be driven abe again came to the rescue and by his advice their eyes were sewed up with a needle and thread so that if the animals fought any more they should do it in the dark abe held their heads and john hanks their tails while offutt did the surgery they were then thrown into a cart whence abe took them one by one in his great arms and deposited them on board from this point they sped very rapidly down the sangamon and the illinois having constructed curious-looking sails of plank and sometimes cloth they were a sight to see as they rushed through beardstown where the people came out and laughed at them they swept by alton and cairo and other considerable places without tying up but stopped at memphis vicksburg and natchez in due time they arrived at new orleans there it was says john hanks we saw negroes chained maltreated whipped and scourged lincoln saw it his heart bled said nothing much was silent from feeling was sad looked bad felt bad was thoughtful and abstracted i can say knowing it that it was on this trip that he formed his opinion of slavery it run its iron in him then and there may eighteen thirty one i have heard him say so often and often some time in june the party took passage on a steamboat going up the river and remained together until they reached st louis where offutt left them and abe hanks and johnston started on foot for the interior of illinois at edwardsville twenty-five miles out hanks took the road to springfield and abe and johnston took that to coles county where tom lincoln had moved since abraham's departure from home abe never worked again in company with his friend and relative good old john hanks here their paths separated abe's began to ascend the heights while john's continued along the common level they were in the black hawk war during the same campaign but not in the same division but they corresponded and from eighteen thirty three met at least once a year until abe was elected president then abe delighting to honor those of his relatives who were worthy of it invited john to go with him to see his stepmother john also went to the inauguration at washington and tells with pardonable pride how he was in abe's rooms several times he then retired to his old home in macon county until the assassination and the great funeral when he came to springfield to look in the blackened face of his old friend and witness the last ceremonies of his splendid burial scarcely had abe reached coles county and begun to think what next to turn his hand to when he received a visit from a famous wrestler one daniel needham who regarded him as a growing rival and had a fancy to try him a fall or two he considered himself the best man in the country and the report of abe's achievements filled his big breast with envious pains his greeting was friendly and hearty but his challenge was rough and peremptory 
Abe valued his popularity among the boys too highly to decline it, and met him by public appointment in the Greenwood at Wabash Point, where he threw him twice with so much ease that Needham's pride was hurt more than his body. Lincoln said he, you have thrown me twice, but you can't whip me. Needham, replied Abe, are you satisfied that I can throw you? If you are not, and must be convinced through a threshing, I will do that too for your sake. Needham had hoped that the youngster would shrink from the extremity of a fight with the acknowledged bully of the patch, but finding him willing, and at the same time magnanimously inclined to whip him solely for his own good, he concluded that a bloody nose and a black eye would be the reverse of soothing to his feelings, and therefore surrendered the field with such grace as he could command. End of section 5